You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, whtt.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, we're very fortunate to have with us Pastor Joseph Beach from the Amazing Grace Church in Denver, Colorado. We met Pastor Joe at the Christ at the Checkpoint back in October, and he's going to explain to us biblically why Jesus' closest friends in the neighborhood of Nazareth wanted to kill him and tried to do so when he first preached to them in the synagogue where he had grown up. This is a clear and supportive biblical lesson that is rarely taught in Christian churches. And so Pastor Joe will be providing us some applications that we can apply from these scriptures to our own lives. Pastor Joe will be addressing us from the book of Luke, chapter 4. And so before we start, I'd like to call on Craig Hansen to uh, offer an opening prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this evening. We thank you that we can gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ and proclaim your name as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Uh, we thank you for Pastor uh, Beach, and we're looking forward now to, to hear what you have for us from your holy word uh, guide our thoughts and that we might uh, honor you in all that's said and done in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Craig, and welcome, Pastor Joe. Thank you. My sermon a couple of weeks ago was on Luke chapter 4, verse 14 through verse 30, and it was inspired by uh, Gary Burge. Dr. Gary Burge uh, did a Bible study on it when I was at the conference, Christ at the Checkpoint at Oklahoma City, and his Bible study so moved me and thrilled me and challenged me, and I loved it. So I adapted it into a sermon here at my church a couple of weeks ago. In the sermon, Dr. Burge made a great point in how he believes that this is Luke's opening story that he really wanted to drive home to his listeners. He said each of the four gospel writers had kind of a, a major point or a central theme they wanted to set forth right at the beginning he thinks this was Luke's. He thinks Luke is setting the stage for his entire gospel and wanted his readers to see something here of major importance, which makes sense because this was kind of like Jesus' opening sermon where Jesus describes himself and his mission and his identity and his person. And So it, what struck me, though, when I was studying the passage was how popular Jesus was before and even during and even right after this sermon how admired he was, how loved he was, and, uh, and then how his closest family and friends from Nazareth, right where he grew up, turned on him instantly. I was struck by the question, what could he have done or what did he say that would have made them become murderously rage-filled, hate-filled, within just a matter of minutes? He must have done something or said something and so the text, when it opens up in Luke chapter 4:14, it drives home the point that Jesus was already popular 
So this wasn't his first sermon, but it was his first sermon at his home church, if you want to say it that way. He had already been in the Galilee region after his temptation. He returned to that area in the power of the Spirit, it says. News about him had spread all over the place. He was extremely popular. He was teaching in their synagogues. And then it says everyone praised him. Then he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And then it says, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. I took that to mean that Jesus actually selected this passage on purpose. And he turned to one of the most popular passages to his Jewish family and his Jewish audience. To them, it would have been as familiar as the national anthem would be to us or the Pledge of Allegiance would be to us. It, in a sense, was their national anthem. And he quoted it to them. They would have been very familiar with it. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, and set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what would have struck them is he left out the next lines on vengeance and violence, kind of just left that out, I believe, very much on purpose. That would have surprised them, but They weren't mad at him yet. He handed the scroll back, sat down, all the eyes were on him, and then he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. His audience would have known he was reading about the Messiah that was to come, the Messiah that they were waiting for, the the Messiah that they were longing for. They knew exactly what he was saying and what he was claiming. He was claiming that he was the Messiah, he was Israel's Messiah, and that he was there, that this scripture was being fulfilled right in front of them. That shocked them, and so they said, isn't this Joseph's son? But even after he said, today this scripture is fulfilled, they said, all spoke well of him, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. So, that's the scene. That's how it's all set up. He's basically announcing that the kingdom is here, because the king is here, the messianic kingdom you've been waiting for is here. I am that one you've all been waiting for. And that thrilled them. They did not want to kill Jesus because he claimed to be the Messiah. They didn't want to kill him, at least in this passage, because he claimed to be divine even. They wanted him to be the Messiah. That didn't freak them out at all. That thrilled them. So what happened in the next few minutes after that that made them furiously angry and full of murderous rage? so much so that they attempted to kill this hometown boy that they knew well from a family that they knew well, a man that they had deeply admired only minutes before. All Jesus did was quote a proverb and make two tiny references to Elijah and Elisha, two of their favorite prophets. That's all he did. So why did these make the people so furious, so murderous? (laughs) My suggestion as to the reason for their sudden murderous wrath, I came up with three suggestions. First, Jesus accused them of being rejectors of God and his prophets. Number two, he accused them of missing the point of what God was up to, what God was doing. And three, Jesus accused them of being spiritually poor, imprisoned, and blind. He said he came for the blind, but what they weren't expecting was that he would accuse them of being the blind, imprisoned, and spiritually poor ones because they couldn't see what God was doing. 
they killed God's anointed. So I just want to go over those real quick. What I mean by accusing them of rejecting God and his prophets, Jesus would talk about that a lot throughout many of his sermons and parables. He would always refer to a landowner or king who would send his representatives or messengers, and they would not be received well. In fact, they'd be killed. Some stories, the king would finally send his own son, who, of course, would also be rejected and killed. And Jesus, of course, was referring to himself. John put it famously, he came to his own, but his own received him not. So by referring to Elijah and Elisha and to these prophets, he was kind of accusing them of rejecting. They missed God, number two. They missed God. They missed what he was doing. He was accusing them of missing the point. He did that often, too, when he would do things like weep over Jerusalem in Luke 13. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you weren't willing. Or in Luke 19, as he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, if you'd only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They'll crush you to the ground and you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon the other because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Or in Acts 1, 6, when the disciples were gathered around Jesus saying, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, there are people who think that the disciples were not mistaken at all in their question. I happen to believe the disciples have it exactly wrong. In other words, they were still misunderstanding Jesus, like they had been for three years straight. Jesus had to keep turning to them, saying, you still don't get it. You still don't get it. You still don't understand. I assume in Acts 1-6 they were still somewhat misunderstanding the nature of the king and his kingdom. Or as Calvin said, this question has as many problems as it has words. <laughs> That's the way I would take it. They showed an astonishing ignorance of both the nature and the recipients of the kingdom. And I think Jesus was accusing them of that when he referred to Elijah and Elisha. The reason why I should have said, to make the point more clear, how he accused them of doing this is he said a prophet is without honor in his hometown. A prophet does not have honor in his hometown. A prophet can't do as many miracles in his hometown. A prophet isn't received well in his hometown. I should have said that's the proverb. I mean, that's the thing that Jesus referred to. So I think through that and the quotation of the proverb, he was accusing them of these things. Thirdly, he accused them of being spiritually low or spiritually dead or spiritually poor in representing himself as a prophet without honor in his hometown and particularly associating himself with Elijah and Elisha. He was saying, I think, that many of his fellow Israelites were going through a very low time spiritually again. The reason I'm saying that is because in the days of Elijah and Elisha, Israel was at one of their lowest points spiritually. They had a, a widespread level of unfaithfulness and idolatry, and they were very spiritually low point. He was accusing them of this, I think, by referring to Elijah and Elisha. So anyway, when Jesus purposely chose to quote their national anthem and purposely leave out every single reference in it to their national identity and their national agenda and national interests in order to show them that not only their interests but the interests of everyone on earth will be served, I think it made them furious. I think it infuriated them. And he goes out of his way in there to refer to the days of Elijah and Elisha by saying, remember 
when Elijah was around and the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So he referred to, not only did he infuriate them by saying, you've missed the point and you've misunderstood my role as the Messiah, and you don't understand that this is bigger than just your national identity and national agenda and national interest, that this is for everyone. This is, I'm also the savior of the world. I'm not only Israel's Messiah, I am Israel's Messiah, but I'm also the savior of the world. I'm here to renew and restore Israel, which he did in his first coming, <laughs> but I'm also here to expand Israel and to fulfill all the promises. I'm here to throw open the gates. I'm here to expand the borders to the whole planet. And he picks these two people that uh, they would have considered enemies, outsiders, not only Gentiles, but worse than that. Naaman the Syria was, I think, the general of their most hated enemies. I mean, you couldn't pick another person that would be more infuriating to them. This would be like today's world would be like picking a Palestinian or something or somebody that they just outside their interests totally or maybe even in they, someone they consider to be an enemy. Well, upending their assumptions, that's why I think they suddenly want to kill Jesus. He is turning their assumptions about salvation, about the kingdom, about the Messiah. I think he's upending them, turning them on their head. He's upending geographical boundaries and the ethnic identity of the Jewish people. He's saying that it's bigger than that. My kingdom, my salvation will now not be limited by geographical boundary or ethnic identity. It's going to be expanded to include the Gentiles. It will include both Jews and Gentiles, all who are in Christ. And uh, Gary Bird said, all New Testament scholars say that this is what the passage means. He said, you can take it to the bank. That's what Jesus is doing here, and that's why they want to kill him. These listeners of Jesus, these fellow hometown people, cannot handle this new plan of God. And Jesus is telling them that until they get God's new plan, they are the blind and the lost ones outside of his blessing. And Luke drives that point home in his gospel and in its sequel, the book of Acts, over and over and over. And that's why Luke uses this story as his curtain raiser on his symphony, if you want to put it that way. The Messiah did not come to just bless a few, but to bless all. The work of the Messiah was never just about national blessing, but the personal blessing of everyone on earth. And it comes right from their own favorite scriptures. Isaiah 56, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I'll gather the exiles of Israel, but I'll also gather still others to them. Isaiah 56, 8. Isaiah 49, I will restore Israel and also will make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. When Jesus arrives and says, that time is right now, I'm here, they initially get excited until they realize they've misunderstood his mission. So Jesus tried to get his listeners in his first sermon at his home church to see that his love and his blessing and his mission was for all people. And he accused them of being too blind to see what he was doing. He accused them of being the blind ones. In fact, when he quotes from Isaiah 42, 7, which wasn't even part of this passage, he goes back and grabs a sentence from Isaiah 42. I will make you to be a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind. He was purposely making that point. 
which is mind-blowing. It's, it's hard to imagine how God's people have missed this point through the centuries, before Christ and after Christ. The whole point of the Abrahamic covenant was to make his people be a blessing to the nations. I will make you a blessing to the nations. Now, to us today, I think it would be very fair to say that you could preach the same thing to us Americans, and particularly American Christians. I think it would be fair to say that the church in America today is at a very low point spiritually. We're at a very weak, low, distracted, compromised. (laughs) I think it's pretty easy to make that case that that the church in America is at a low point. We, too, want a Messiah for our own purposes. We just want a Jesus to sort of endorse our national interests and national agendas and bless all our wars and all of our agenda and identity and security. We, too, are at a low point. We just kind of want Jesus as a hood ornament on the, on the Hummer <laughs> that we're, we're flying along on, just a token that we add to what we're doing. So to summarize, One of the biggest mistakes that God's covenant people have always made from the beginning of time is that we get this sense of entitlement, this sense of privilege, and it is deadly. It causes God's people to miss God and to miss the point and to miss what God is doing and to miss their own calling and mission. Anytime God's people, Jews or Gentiles, Israel or the church, in other words, Old Testament people or New Testament people, Anytime they start thinking, this is our land, this is our capital, and we can do whatever we want with it, they've missed God's point. They've missed the purpose. Anytime we say we are God's chosen people and they are not, we kind of start missing the point. Anytime we start emphasizing that we are the ones who receive God's blessing and can do anything we want with it and they are not, we're missing the point. Anytime we overdo overstress. We are insiders and they're outsiders. We're God's people and they are the dogs. We're the saved ones and they're not. We're in danger of missing the point. If we turn that into kind of an entitlement or privilege, we're in danger of missing the Messiah and his mission. We're in danger of missing our own calling and mission. From the beginning, God's people were formed with the express purpose of being a blessing to the whole world. Now, I assume that some of my listeners were getting uncomfortable about that time. And maybe someone who hears me now might be getting uncomfortable, maybe even a little irritated or mad. Maybe some of you want to throw me off the cliffs of Nazareth, I said. Then I I reminded them of something that Gary Burge had said. He said, a famous Jewish rabbi said 200 years ago, your rabbi is only your rabbi when you want to run him out of town. And I transferred that to saying your pastor is only your pastor when you want to run him out of town. Pastor's are not supposed to only say what their people want to hear. People want their ears tickled and their assumptions confirmed. If that's all we do, then we fail our people. And I love my congregation. I don't want to shock them or I don't want to freak them out. But I still want to speak the truth out of this passage. I would fail them and I'd fail my call if I didn't tell them the truth, even if it makes them want to throw me off the cliff now and then. (laughs) Anyway, so that was my message. I hope it helped. Wow, thank you, Pastor Joe. That was very, very inspiring. And we don't want to throw you off the cliff. At least uh, here at We Hold These Truths. But we do have some questions for you. I'm going to turn it over to Chuck. I have one question, and I think you've already pretty much answered this, but uh, Pastor Beach, We Hold These Truths has worked for years to try to prevent warring and killing in the Middle East 
that has never stopped. And uh, we've found that uh, millions of church-going Americans are being led to accept and support what are essentially continuous wars in the Middle East because they think the killing is necessary to protect the 1948 state that calls itself Israel. As I understand this lesson, Jesus was telling us that God did not make a racial blessing to any tribe, to Israel or any other tribe, and that each of us becomes blessed when we pick up the message and carry it. This is for everyone, and I'm also wondering if there was anything at all to do with the land that was then called Judea, now called adopted a new name of Israel in 1948, that God meant by this blessing that he provided. Does the land have anything to do with it at all? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question that gets everybody angry. You know, different Christians obviously have differing viewpoints on this. I lean towards Jesus being the fulfillment of all the promises given, you know, to Abraham and his descendants. And I don't mean that I'm God and that I know exactly what's going to happen in the future. You know, God may have some providential purpose or plan to do certain things that have certain geographical implications. But for the most part, I come down on believing that Jesus fulfilled, you know, the sacrificial system he fulfilled. He's the new Passover lamb, the new and final and ultimate lamb he's the temple and i would even say he's the land he fulfills everything and what baffles me most is why we wouldn't read what we call the old testament as a christian in other words i feel i can't just read it as a blank slate i must read it as a christian we read what's called the hebrew bible as christians and i I think we should do that unapologetically in other words if i'm not reading the bible the same way Jesus, Paul, and Peter did, then I'm not reading it well. So to read the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, in the way Paul does, which is what I feel I have to do, when Paul tells me that all the promises given to Abraham are inherited by all those that are in Christ, I think I have to take him at his word. If he says that all people, Jews or Gentiles, who are in Christ, are the heirs according to the promise. They're the the inheritors. I would say that has to include the land. So every Christian on earth is the inheritor of that promise. And even the, the original, those who bless Abraham's descendants will be blessed, I still believe that's in force, all those who bless God's people. In other words, if you bless the people of God, all those in Christ, both Jews and Gentiles worldwide, then you'll be blessed. If you curse them, then you'll be cursed. It would, it would be a warning against attacking God's people, um, which, again, would be the church, and that Israel expanded, Israel fulfilled, Israel extended. It's not an anti-Israel message. It's just simply the message preached by the Apostle Paul, for instance. And so, no, I don't think we should apply the land anymore, in my opinion, to any modern nation-state Even if there are those who I think wrongfully assert this is our land, uh, which is not really true, it was always God's land, but they would have to use it in righteous, just ways. 
And since they were always commanded in the Old Testament that they are to share that land with foreigners and they're to treat them graciously and justly and fairly and kindly, even if the modern state of Israel used that land in the ways they're commanded to in the Old Testament, we'd be a lot better off. So anyway, but no, I don't think the land necessarily has any connection to what's now called Israel. It doesn't mean we have to be anti-Israel or anti-Israelis or anything like that. It's just safer to stick with the New Testament. What was called the promised land has been fulfilled in Christ and now expanded to the whole earth. What was the temple has now been fulfilled in Christ and is now fulfilled in him and in his body, his kingdom throughout the world. So that's what I say. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. I've got a question for Pastor okay. okay. I've been reading in um, Hebrews 11, right? It's all the, the list of the saints of old. And I, I came across the, this passage today, and I'd like to see you get a comment on it. That's uh, Hebrews 11. It starts with verse 13. It's talking about the, uh, the former saints. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I, I think that whole passage there, it goes with what you're talking about. It's the heavenly Jerusalem, it's the heavenly people that we're called to. Any, any comments on that? Yeah, I think that's a very applicable passage, a very relevant one and important. And I think, I think it says exactly what I was trying to say, that our ultimate you know, destiny obviously is the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, heaven on earth, the renewed creation of God. But that, I think, is brought back into this age. In other words, when Christ came, he fulfilled the promises and established his kingdom. So we, in a sense, begin to live out that future. We are in that heavenly kingdom now, which extends all around the earth. And so there is a bit of that now and not yet to this age. But Jesus said, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth, shall inherit the world, shall inherit the land, you could even say. And so, in a sense, the people in the kingdom are inheriting that land or that promise, that country, that better city, the king and his kingdom now and forever. But we're getting a taste of it now. We're entering into it now. So, But, yeah, I do think that has serious implications for Zionism and for thinking about God having a particular geographical region right now for a particular people or ethnic people. Even back then, you know, these people were longing for a better city whose builder was God. You know, it wasn't just a particular region or, yeah. Christy, do you have a question? He nailed it. <laughs> that was great. I'm definitely not wanting to throw you off any cliffs, so. Yeah. So many things that you said I agree with and support. Fulfillment, the restoration. This is kingdom was the promised restoration of Israel. And the prophets all said and told us it was going to be restored, but they pointed out it was going to be a spiritual restoration. You know, I'm going to give you a new spirit, put a new heart in you and through this Messiah. So all of the 
prophets and the promises were written in a lot of poetic imagery. And so I agree with you, the land and all of these things to be applied inside of us and our hearts and the kingdom within us. And, and that's another point I think I make on this, that Jesus said the kingdom, which he was referring to the promised restored kingdom, is not going to come with your observation. You're not going to see it on any physical land, but it's going to be within you, within, within our hearts by the Spirit. So all of this is playing out inside of us now. But I do agree with you that I still think in the book of Revelation there will be some geographical things that will take place here. That's my personal belief. But, yeah. but yes, the kingdom and all the fulfillments are happening in our heart through the Spirit. Christ yeah. is our personal sin offering. He's our Passover lamb. It's all you said yeah. is wonderful. We need to read the Old Testament as Christians. That's why we call it the Old Testament, because we have a New Testament. We have a New Covenant. We read it through the eyes of Christ, through the eyes of the gospel as Christians. And so when Paul tells us that salvation was always by grace through faith, you know, he makes a big point that Abraham was justified by faith before he was ever even circumcised, before there was ever any such thing as Israel. That came later to be Jacob's name later. So there was not even any such thing when the promise was made to Abraham and he came to faith. So salvation was never by race always by grace through faith. And if Paul says that, I have to believe that. And so one final comment, what you were just saying, what kind of really gets me going, why I'm so against a certain kind of reading of the scriptures, is that when Christ first came, and you can read all about this in Luke 1 and Luke 2, the Christmas story, Zechariah was so full of joy because he said, the God of Israel has come to his people and redeemed them. He came to the house of David and redeemed them. He restored them. And then in Luke 2, when Jesus is brought to the temple, Simeon says, I've been waiting for the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, the fulfillment of Israel, and it's here. The Lord's Messiah is here. Another verse in verse 38 of chapter 2, he says, I've been looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem, and it's happened now. Anna said that. It's happened. In other words, I think... A dispensational reading or a Zionist reading devalues Christ at his first coming. It really takes away from the majestic, universal fulfillment and salvation that Jesus came. I mean, he he did fulfill all of Israel's dreams and hopes and dreams and everything they'd been longing for, he fulfilled. And if you don't say that, you're really devaluing him. You're saying, oh, he didn't do anything his first coming. He finally just gave up and went back and died for our sins, thankfully. But no, he he was Israel's Messiah. He, he was either Israel's Messiah or he wasn't. Either he's the Savior of the world or Israel is. And I say he is. I say Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. Well said. Kind of a corollary question here, uh, Pastor Joe. You mentioned this notion of fulfillment with uh, Jesus coming, although many of the dispensationalists will say that, will accuse, it's used as a pejorative, they'll say that people that are saying this are replacement theologists instead of fulfillment. Do you want to comment any about this notion of replacement theology versus fulfillment theology? I haven't really heard heard about that most of my life, but I started hearing it, and I don't even, I kind of know what it is now, but that is not what I'm saying. I think it's a false accusation. It's just a, I think it's a, it's a way to distract or deflect what we're saying. 
the olive tree spoken of in Romans, there's just one tree. You know, another tree doesn't come along and replace that tree, the original tree called Israel. The Gentiles are grafted into the one tree. Unfaithful branches are broken off of the one tree. So there's always been only one olive tree, and there's no replacing it. It's just grafted onto. So I like to say it's expanded. This is expansion theology, not replacement. Or it's Israel expanded, Israel extended, Israel fulfilled. Israel was always supposed to be expanded. He said, I will make you a blessing to the nations. You will always be a light to the Gentiles. That's your whole purpose for existence. So Israel was always supposed to be enlarged or expanded. The olive tree was always supposed to get bigger and have Gentiles grafted into it. So no, I don't like, I think that's a poor label slapped on us. There's no replacing of the olive tree. It's not an anti-Semitic or anti-Israel gospel. It's a Jewish gospel. In other words, Jesus was a Jew and all of his first disciples were Jews. So it's not an anti-Jew thing. It's a fulfillment theology, covenant theology, fulfillment theology. You can call it by a number of things, but it's not replacement. I don't like that word. <laughs> Dave, you have any comments or questions? In listening to all of this, I thought of John 5.39. The search of scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life, but they are which they testify of me. You know, all scriptures pointing to Christ. And I like what was said about us reading the Old Testament as Christians through the eyes of the Holy Spirit, just as Jesus did when he taught in the temple. And what astonishes me, well, the pastor also mentioned today the spiritual law in the churches, and I agree with that. The astonishing ignorance in the evangelical churches today is just overwhelming it maybe um, maybe the pastor has some insight into what he may see in the in the leadership and maybe a turnaround in these churches and to you know move away from their rabid support of israel and israel being right no matter what they what they do over there and and do in gaza and so on and so forth and any uh, thoughts and comments on that i've been a little discouraged because i thought that it would trickle down, good theology would, um, would trickle down by now because for the last even 40 years, there really isn't this kind of thinking at, at the seminary level, Bible college level, at, at most of the good stuff. In other words, 99% of the good theologians and good New Testament scholars have it right. But for some reason, at the popular level, just pop culture of America – it's just in the air we breathe. It's just it's just kind of assumed. It's very hard to counter that. A pastor, even a, a really good pastor, and there's hundreds of them out there, they're, they might only have a chance to disciple their people for a few minutes per month, basically, while the pop culture gets to shape them and form them constantly. And it's just in the air we breathe. It's just it's very hard to counter, and it suits America's politicians and their foreign policy it suits israel and its policies it suits everybody and so they don't like to counter that lousy theology at the grassroots level the pop culture it does sell books so it's very popular in terms of on christian tv christian radio christian literature it's very popular but it's not present among the good teachers and theologians so 
I'm not sure why it hasn't trickled down yet. I just I think most pastors are. I, I'm not saying we are cowardly because I don't think we're totally that. <laughs> I just think we're fighting this constant battle where we feel censored or cautious. We're just we're so afraid <laughs> of. Uh, I shouldn't say afraid. But we are desperately trying to figure out how to plant seeds so that we can get the truth into people without exploding them. Because if you speak the truth from any pulpit in America, people will walk right out, and maybe that's what we're supposed to do. But I'm saying (laughs) it's a tough one because as a pastor, you're trying to balance pastoral care and pastoral love with the truth. And it's a constant battle because they're full of assumptions from the pop culture. So it's a tough, I don't know the answer or how to do it well. But, like, for instance, I preached this sermon that I just went over, and I never mentioned modern state of Israel or Zionism or dispensationalism. That's an example of what I mean by trying to put that seed of truth into people and hoping that it'll bear fruit. Now, outside of the pulpit, if I'm in a class or in a small group, I'll explain what I mean exactly, you know. But when I'm trying to preach the gospel, I'll just, I want to preach the text. I just want to preach it but I'm hoping that makes a difference. Well, thank you so much, Pastor Joe. We really appreciate your, your insights, a very thoughtful presentation. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.